you're not already there, go ahead and turn to Acts 24. Someone was coming up to you and they accused you of being a pest and stirring up trouble and just generally being a disagreeable and terrible kind of person, what would be your first response? Depending on if you're a guy or a girl, it might be to go say terrible things about them, it might be to knock them down. Sometimes we fail to think through the impact that the response, that our response to those sorts of false accusations would have on not just the people who are making us upset, but everyone around who's watching. The reason I say that is because in this section, we see at least two audiences. We see the Jews who are falsely accusing Paul. And on the other hand, we see the Roman officials who have a sort of a curiosity about the things that Paul would say. Sometimes uh, we face this sort of struggle. Somebody says something online. Somebody, um, somebody starts talking about an issue that's clearly morally wrong. Something like abortion, immorality, those sorts of things. And our gut response is to just sort of wait in and let them have it. We can, as I think this passage shows us, stand up for the truth without unnecessarily creating enemies or removing future opportunities for the gospel. And that's an extremely hard thing to do because when someone brings up something that is clearly morally wrong, or somebody says something about you that's clearly false, we want that to be fixed. We want people to know the truth. We want people to stop it's just sort of spouting lies. But we have to think about how does my response in this situation affect the reputation of the church, the perception that people have of the gospel, and my future opportunities to share the truth with them. This continues what we were looking at in chapter 23. There was the plot to kill Paul, and so now, of course, he's been moved to Caesarea to put him in sort of a safe place away from the plots of the Jews in Jerusalem. And now comes the trial. Before, it was sort of a, an informal examination to try to determine why the riot started and all of these sorts of things. And now it's moving into a more formal proceeding. How do we know this? We have an attorney, a, a, a legal advocate named Tertullus. We have charges. We have a plea, we have a defense. There's all of these elements of a courtroom-type setting, a tribunal. And in this case, the uh, accusers are clearly the Jews who have been plotting against Paul. The defendant is Paul himself, and the one who's going to decide the case, theoretically, is this Roman official, Felix. So the high priest comes down. Clearly the Jews attach some significance to this for the high priest himself to come down. And now the uh, legal official, Tertullus, begins to accuse Paul. But he starts out with a little bit of flattery toward the one who's going to be the judge. Since we through you have attained much peace 
And since by your providence reforms are being carried out for this nation, we acknowledge this in every way and everywhere, most excellent Felix, with all thankfulness. Now that's not the tone that they would have read it in. That's the tone that was going on in their minds. The Jews hated the Romans. They looked down on them. They despised them. They, it irked them that they couldn't just knock Paul off themselves. They had to try to persuade the Romans to do it for them. And so they're coming, and they're having to ingratiate, just to, to just sort of flatter the Roman official in hopes of getting what they want. And that had to have been so frustrating for them. And and this is clearly flattery. Felix might have been an okay judge, but historical records indicate he wasn't an amazing one. And so to say that he's the reason for much peace and reforms are being carried out for the nation, this is clearly something that they're just trying to get him in a frame of mind where he's going to accept the words that they're going to say. This tone continues in verse 4 that I may not weary you any further, I beg you to grant us by your kindness a brief hearing. Again, you know, there's respect, there's honest, please do your job well, and then there's just sort of a, a subservient, just sort of false humility groveling kind of thing, and that seems to be the attitude that they're taking here. What's their accusation against Paul? We found him a real pest. He stirs up dissension. He tried to desecrate the temple. And you can figure out that what we're saying is true. That's kind of the things that they say here. Uh, just as a point of note, a good chunk of verses 6, 7, and 8 are not in the very early manuscripts. Uh, and just how do we take that? Essentially, uh, the reason that they are in the text here is because... Uh, they would have been included in some of the manuscripts that were first, the Bible was first translated from into English. And those uh, manuscripts were written, they were later copies. And then since that time, earlier copies were discovered. And those earlier copies had certain phrases that weren't in there. And without going into too much detail, uh, sometimes people will look at that and they'll say, well, if you go with those earlier manuscripts that leave out certain phrases, you are taking out truth about Jesus. You're removing the blood of Christ from the Bible. You're removing the concept of grace. The reality is, the core aspects of our faith are taught in a number of passages. The question is not, does the Bible teach that Christ died for sinners and that His blood paid for our sins and that God showed grace to us and all of those sorts of things? The question is, does this passage say that or is it only in these two other passages? That's really what it comes down to. In the same way, what is quite possible, though we can't say for sure, to have happened in this case is that someone is copying the book of Acts, adds an uh, a note of explanation and then someone else misses that that's an addition of explanation and copies it into the text. Was it consistent with the rest of the book? Yes. I mean, what's written here is a true statement. Was it likely to have been in the original manuscript? Given their flattering tone in the previous few verses, it seems kind of strange that they would immediately turn and be like, and your guy, Lysias, he did a terrible job. Now listen to what we have to say. 
It just doesn't seem to fit with the flow of the text, even though it was true from what we saw from the previous chapter. And so when you see something in brackets in your Bible, you see a little note, not in early manuscripts, the response in your mind should not be, I can't trust the Bible. It should just be a recognition that we have so many copies of the Bible from so many periods of history. Some of them have additional notes that have been added in or phrases, verses that have been copied from other parts of the Bible, some of them quite clearly, like word for word from another book. No one did this maliciously. This doesn't mean that the Bible is untrue. Our confidence is that the original manuscripts that were written, the, the letter that Paul wrote, the account that Luke wrote to Theophilus, that first thing that they wrote was inspired by God, 100% accurate, is God's word. God has preserved his word for us today, and no essential doctrine is affected by these disputed passages where someone may have added an editorial note that made its way into the text, or where someone copied a verse from another section of the Bible, or where someone missed a punctuation mark because honestly, the punctuation marks weren't in the original text. It was all just sort of one long thing. Again, our confidence in the Word of God should not be affected. We should just recognize that there are differences in the copies of the Bible preserved today for us. Going back to verse 5. What is the accusation against Paul? He's causing us trouble, but they're trying to turn it from what it actually was to something that the Roman official would see as an actual threat. Because it's one thing if he really irritates the Jews, because the Romans don't really care about that. You have your little squabbles over here about things that aren't important to us. Fine. The thing that they carried, cared about was that there would be peace in the region, that there would not be some sort of riot or uprising or those sorts of things, because they took a very serious view of that and came down hard on those things. And so what the Jews, through Tertullus, are trying to do is turn it from Paul annoys and frustrates us, and we hate him and we want him dead, too. He is a threat to Rome. So you see this in the way that they've crafted their statement. He stirs up dissension. He is a ringleader of a sect of the Nazarenes. Also, the phrase, throughout the world. Now, was, um, did he stir up dissension throughout the world? Well, the world, obviously, depending on how you view it, it Paul didn't go to all that many places. He went primarily to uh, Israel, to what is modern-day Turkey, and then to Greece, Macedonia, that sort of region, and then a few islands in the Mediterranean. He didn't go down into Africa. He didn't go to Italy. He didn't go to Spain. At least by this point, none of, he hadn't gone to any of those places. So the world is a little bit of an exaggeration, a good portion of it, but not the whole world. The idea of stirring up dissension is also not representing the truth accurately because who is the one that stirred up trouble every time Paul tried to speak? It wasn't Paul. It was either Jews who didn't want to hear his message or it was Gentiles who saw in his message a threat to their idolatry and sometimes to their pocketbooks. So the real ones who are stirring up dissension was not Paul but those who responded to his message. This phrasing of him being a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes was, again, trying to give the impression that he's part of a fringe group, that he's uh, sort of like a, a leader who's going to stir up trouble. If you knew that someone was a pastor of a church in a well-known denomination, and somebody said, oh, he's, you know, he's a, a pastor of this church, 
we might not disagree with them or not agree with them. We might say, well, that church as a rule doesn't preach the gospel, so we wouldn't have any fellowship with them. But that creates a whole sort of different picture than if we said, he's the leader of a cult, and here's all the weird things that they do, and they're stocking up ammo and guns and going to come against the government. Do you see the difference in the picture that's being painted here? One is, we don't like him, but he's a respectable individual. The other is, he's a threat, get rid of him. And that's what they're trying to do with Paul. This last phrase of verse 8, by examining yourself concerning all these matters, you will be able to ascertain the things of which we accuse him, is essentially saying, you know, we've kind of said what's happened, but, but you question him. But, but here's the question. They don't bring forth any witnesses. They don't have any proof. They're just sort of trying to make a persuasive argument without anything because they have no proof. They have no witnesses that can honestly say what happened was Paul's fault and that he did something wrong. He broke some law. All that they have is accusation and hearsay and so forth. The verse 6 where he tried to desecrate the temple, that was their assumption which was proven to be wrong. The commander in the previous verses found them to be arguing about their law and that Paul hadn't done anything wrong. And so they're again trying to turn a religious dispute into a threat against Rome in the hopes that the Romans will get rid of Paul since they have been unable to do so to this point. Notice Paul's response in verse 10. Verse 9 says the Jews join in the attack asserting these things were so. But again, they offer no proof. They're just like, yeah, what he said is right. Quick comment. This violated the law in a number of respects. You were not supposed to bear false witness against your neighbor. And there were supposed to be two or three witnesses that could actually testify the truth of what was being said. And instead what we have is, let's make up things about Paul and then let's all just sort of join in and say that that's, that's, what, was, that's what actually happened. Again, there's this, this parallel that Luke is drawing between the response of the Jews to Christ and the response of the Gentiles to Christ and now the response of the Jews to a representative of Christ and the response of the Roman officials. Again, it is false accusations. We find nothing wrong. Making up lies... You have no proof. Again, just all, bringing up all these elements again. Paul's response in verse 10. Knowing you have been a judge, I cheerfully make my defense. Paul doesn't engage in any flatter. He just states the facts. You're a judge. I'm happy to explain what happened to you. And sort of implied, I'm trusting God that you'll make a wise decision in your ruling. What are the facts? No more than 12 days ago, I went up to Jerusalem to worship. Some people read this as... Uh, sort of Paul saying, and nothing bad has happened in those 12 days other than this disturbance that they're talking about that they caused. So I'm not the one to blame here. There's other ways to read it as well, of course. Verse 12, neither in the temple, nor in the synagogues, nor in the city did they find me carrying on a discussion with anyone or causing a riot. Nor can they prove to you of which they now accuse me. But this I admit to you, that according to the way which they call a sect, I do serve the God of our fathers, believing everything that is in accordance with the law and that is written in the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men cherish themselves, that there shall certainly be a resurrection of the righteous and the wicked. In view of this, I also do my best to maintain always a blameless conscience before God and before men. 
After several years, I came to bring alms to my nation and to present offerings, in which they found me in the temple, having been purified without crowd or uproar. But some Jews from Asia, who ought to have been present before you and make accusation if they should have anything against me, or let these men themselves tell me what misdeed they found when I stood before the council, other than for this one statement which I shouted out while standing among them, for the resurrection of the dead, I am on trial before you today. Paul just sort of goes through and responds to their accusations. He is a pest who stirs up dissension. Paul says, it's been 12 days. I didn't start any riots. He's the leader of a sect. Paul says, what I believe is very similar to what they believe. So if they accuse me of being part of a sect, then their own religion is being called into question because there are very close connections between the Judaism that they profess and the Christianity which comes through Christ that came out of that. I have a hope in God. They have a hope in God. I taught it, said something about the resurrection. They believe that themselves. So Paul is being very clear and saying, I didn't violate any laws. I didn't stir up any trouble. I'm not some fringe leader of a cult. In fact, what I'm saying is the hope and the fulfillment of the things they themselves claim to believe. He also goes into the concept of what was his role, function, stewardship that he was trying to accomplish. I do my best to maintain a blameless conscience before God and before men. This was the thing that he said before that was the reason that they struck him on the mouth in the presence of the high priest. Because if Paul had a blameless conscience, that meant theirs was defiled, and they didn't want to hear that. And yet Paul asserts this again. I haven't done anything wrong. What else does he say? I was there on a peaceful mission task obligation. I was there to help them, to bring money to help those among them who had need. What else? Who started the riot? Some Jews from Asia. Where are they? They're not here. My accusers are not present. The Romans had a very um, unflattering perspective on people who made accusations and didn't bother to show up to the court proceedings. Paul's, I think, pointing that out to strengthen his case and to say, you guys can't produce your witness. You have a bunch of people saying things, but the ones who are actually there when the whole thing started, they're not here. So your case really has no merits. And then Paul says, you know, the one thing I did that they might have grounds to accuse me is this statement I made that I'm on trial for the resurrection of the dead. We talked about that before. Why did he say that? Was it to... Um, was it just merely just a, a clever strategy? No, I think he was calling them to say, are you going to be with me and believe the truth of what I'm saying, or are you going to continue to reject it? This is not disconnected from things you have believed, but it adds truth about Christ that you have not yet accepted. Verse 22 um, seems very clear that Paul's, Paul's statement is sort of cut short, as it has been in several other places leading up to this. Felix, having a more exact knowledge about the way, put them off. The Jews were pushing for a decision right then and there. Find them guilty, crucify him or execute him in some other way. We don't care, just get rid of him. But I think Felix recognizes, and having received the letter from Lysias, that 
Um, it was a question of accusations about their law, verse 29 of chapter 23, under no accusation of deserving death or imprisonment. Felix says, I'm not going to decide this case. Lysias can come talk to me himself. Uh, you're not going to get a decision today. How else do we know that he didn't think Paul was really guilty? He ordered for him to be kept in custody, but to have freedom and not prevent his friends from ministering to him. I'm going to put you in protective custody. Your friends can still come and visit, to, visit you. Uh, you have some limited freedom to move about. He's not treating him as a criminal. He's treating him as someone who's in danger and that he is going to be in trouble if a Roman citizen gets um, assassinated under his watch. That's essentially what's going on here. But he's also not accomplishing justice, is he? Because if he knows he's not guilty, he's trying to make the Jews happy by sort of leading them on that he might eventually rule in their favor. He's trying to make Rome happy by not letting a Roman citizen get killed under his watch. And in the end, he's not accomplishing any justice because Paul's still held as a prisoner of some kind. And so, this, I think, helps give us some perspective on what Luke's purpose is in the, in the, well, in his gospel, but then also in the book of Acts. Some commentators look at it and say, well, it was an apology to the Romans of how positively Christianity looked at Rome. But he's not painting a positive picture, he's just painting an honest picture, right? The point that I think Luke is trying to make in this book, though, is Christianity is not a faith in God that produced the violence or strange ideas that so often it was accused of. The taking the Lord's Supper, even though it used the language of blood and body, was not some sort of cannibalistic ritual. Calling one another brother and sister was not some sort of weird group family thing where everyone was living in and with uh, among everyone else. These are the sorts of things that Christianity was accused of, and I think Luke is arguing against those sorts of things. Christianity is worthy, respectable, and honors God. It's not a cult. It's not disconnected from the Jewish faith that we see at the very beginning of the book. But it is something different because Christ has come, done away with the law, and he is the focus, not the law itself. And so... That leads Luke to paint an honest picture of the Roman officials. Sometimes they didn't do their job, but what was the main conclusion that they had consistently? Being a Christian is not worthy of death. And that, I think, is one of the main points that Luke is making in connection with Rome. The last few verses here, I think, are instructive for us. But some days later, Felix arrived with Drusilla, his wife, who was a Jewess, and sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ. But as he was discussing righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come, Felix became frightened and said, Go away for the present, and when I find time, I will summon you. At the same time, he hoped money would be given to him by Paul. Therefore, he used to send for him quite often and converse with him. What's going on here? What's going on here is the fulfillment of what Jesus promised Paul. You will testify about me before kings, before rulers, 
in places where you have not yet testified for me. How is that taking place? Because Felix won't do his job. Because Felix is a corrupt official. Why do I say that? Because in verse 26, he's basically asking Paul for a bribe. Why would he think he could get a bribe from Paul? Because Paul basically admitted to carrying a large sum of money to Jerusalem for relief of the poor. So he's probably thinking, well, if he raised money before, he can raise money again. Some of it can come my way, and then I'll let him go. Sometimes God gives us the opportunity to serve him because other people are not obeying what would be right and proper and just. So what's our attitude going to be to that sort of situation? To rage against it? To focus on ourselves being vindicated? Or to say, this is where God put me? They're not doing right, but I can still follow God in the midst of this situation. How do we know that he was following God? He discussed righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come. Not only was he faithful in presenting the truth about God, he was also faithful in presenting it in a way that was not going to be well received by the person he was presenting it to. We know from historical records that Felix had been married three times, that he was now married to a Jewish girl, which shouldn't have happened for a variety of reasons connected with the law, uh, that he was someone who, just even from this passage, someone who is not accomplishing justice and seeking a bribe. And so Paul coming alongside and saying, you need to be righteous, you need to have self-control, and God is going to hold you accountable for what you've done, that would not have been a popular message. But it was the message that he needed to hear. So are we going to be frustrated that we're in a situation where we're being treated unjustly? Are we going to hide the truth about God because we're afraid of the outcome of that situation if we don't adjust the truth a little bit? Are we going to be faithful and present the truth before people uh, just state the facts of what is true before people who are accusing us falsely? State clearly the truth of what God requires before people who are living in a wrong way, who have power in this case of life and death over Paul, who have power of whatever it may be over us. Are we going to be a faithful witness and a testimony for Christ? The two passages that this section reminds me of, and we'll come back to verse 27 in a minute. Turn over to 1 Peter, if you would. Because I think there's a couple of verses there that we should keep in mind. First uh, Peter 4 and verse 14, we'll start there. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Make sure that none of you suffers as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or a troublesome meddler. But if as a Christian he is not to be ashamed but to glorify God in this name. For it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And if it begins with us first, what will the outcome be for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if it is with difficulty that the righteous is saved, what will become of the godless man and the sinner? Therefore, those who suffer according to the will of God shall entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. 
Sometimes we suffer because we've sinned. Sometimes we suffer because other people are sinning against us. And in that latter situation, if we are faithful in living for God, we can both trust that God will work out the situation in His time and in His way, and we can be confident that we are pleasing God in where we are right then. Turn back a page or so to chapter 3. Who is there to harm you, verse 13, if you prove zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. Do not fear their intimidation and do not be troubled, but sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence and keep a good conscience so that in the thing in which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. For it is better if God should will it so that you suffer for doing what is right rather than for doing what is wrong. When false accusations are brought against us, when someone speaks badly of Christianity or even just badly of us as a person because of something connected to our faith or just things in general, our gut reaction is to overreact, to say, I'm going to show you wrong and I'm going to come after you, and you're going to be sorry that you said those things about me. What's a proper response according to this passage, and as demonstrated by Paul? Christ is Lord. It's not about you and me. Remember who you serve. Be ready, because it says, always ready to make a defense. Do it the right way with gentleness and reverence. Make sure they have no grounds for saying, yeah, you say that, but here's how you live. Live the right way before you have to make that defense. And recognize, and, and this is an astounding thing that Peter says, it is better that God should will it so that you suffer for doing what is right rather than for doing what is wrong. No, Peter would be better if I didn't suffer at all. And he says, no. If suffering is going to happen, let it be for the right reasons. Let it be something that honors God. And let it be something that promotes the gospel in the midst of your suffering. So what about you? You're not going to go through the exact same thing Paul was going through, in all likelihood. Hopefully you don't have a band of people that follow you around throughout the known world seeking to put you to death because they hate what you're saying. But there are people who won't like the fact that you're a Christian. There are people who will treat you badly because you are a Christian. How are you going to respond to them? Are you going to make it about yourself? Sanctify Christ as Lord. It's not about you. Are you going to say things that will destroy your testimony or make the focus about something that it shouldn't be about because it will make you feel better and you'll get some kind of satisfaction about it? Be ready to make a defense for the hope that is within you, not about your own character, your own testimony, all these things that are really true about you. Be ready to make a defense of the hope that is in you. Have you lived the right way leading up to that situation so there's not grounds of accusation? Well, this guy says stuff, but he doesn't mean what he says. And do you see it as better if you are going to suffer to suffer to bring God glory? not an easy thing to think about. 
None of us wants to suffer. None of us wants our name dragged through the mud. None of us wants people to not like us. But if it happens, how are you going to respond? You have an opportunity, and this is the ironic thing, the very people that in our flesh we want to see God punish because they're not doing right to us, and who 2 Thessalonians 1 says He will punish if they don't repent, those very people, God may use your testimony in the midst of unjust suffering to bring them to Christ. And that person that right now is oppressing and discouraging and speaking harshly to you and not doing right towards you could be sitting in the pew next to you if God wills it to save them. How do you feel about that? God showed that kind of mercy to you. So, Paul recognized his life was not about himself. He was on a course that God had put him on. He was going this way, and God stopped him in his tracks, blinded him for a time, showed him the glory of Christ, and said, no, you're going this way, and it's not going to be an easy road, and it's not going to be what you had planned for your life, but it's going to bring God glory, and it's going to be for your good, and you're going to have this impact on all these people, Are you willing to do that? I'm not saying all of us are going to be Paul. Probably most of us won't have that same kind of impact that he had. But you can have an impact on the people around you if you have the same sort of right response that we see in this chapter that Peter commends to us in 1 Peter 3 and 4. And the end result will be that God will be glorified, people will be saved, and the church will grow but it will happen only if we do what God calls us to do. So are you willing to follow both Paul's example and Peter's admonition? Or are you going to get your two cents in? Are you going to win that argument? Are you going to make it about you and miss the opportunities that God puts in front of you to put his gospel forward? That's a question we have to ask ourselves. Let's pray. Lord, the example that Paul sets for us, the lifestyle that Peter encourages us to live, the reality of the circumstances of our own lives mean that this is not an easy choice. But there's a right choice here and a wrong choice here. Help us to make the right choice, Lord. Help us to point people to you, even if it means we are not shown to be right in this life. Even if it means, like John the Baptist, we fade in the background. Help us to be content with that, joyful with that, pleased with that, if it means that people see you more, know you more, live for you more, that you receive more glory. There's a time and a place for saying I was falsely accused. Here's the facts. Make a wise judgment like Paul did. There's a time and a place for saying certain things are wrong and certain things are right, but the way that we do it can be the difference between whether you are honored and glorified and people are persuaded to the truth 
or whether we just sort of get our way and have our day. Lord, help us to think about the words that we speak, the way that we live, and help that to be done in a way that brings you honor and glory, that accomplishes the purposes that you want in our lives. Help us to realize that we serve you and to respond in a right way to these kinds of circumstances. I pray this as we go to work this week, as we are in our homes as we are around family, as we, whatever it might be that we do. Help us to think about the fact that people are watching us, that we are representing you, and that we need to do it well. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.